Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these cataloged, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. So one of the challenges that we have in Islam is how do we deal with the multiplicity of legal opinions that we have? So we know, uh, and it's common, that in the world of Sunni Islam, we have four schools of thought or school, four schools of law. Uh, there's the Hanafi school, the Shafi'i school, the Maliki school, and the Hanbali school. And one of the things that we are, you know, we are proud of and that we openly defend is we, we, we say that all of these schools and all of these opinions are concurrently correct uh, on all of these subjects. And we celebrate the plurality that we have, the plurality of legal opinions, the plurality of legal expression. But the question that would you know, become logical after that, well, is there one that's right and one that's wrong? Me as an average Muslim, what opinion do I follow? What school do I follow? How do we live with the plurality? So sometimes the plurality creates a problem because then you have all of these options. If there's no options, it's kind of just easy. You, you go with one thing. So today I wanted to address that a little bit. And it's one of our principles because we live um, in an age in which we desperately need all of this plurality, all of these plural opinions. And hopefully, uh, inshallah, that will become clear. So beginning at the time of, the, of prophecy with the Prophet ﷺ, you know, there was no need for plurality. If, if you had a question, you just asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, he'd give you the answer and, and that was that. It was, life was pretty simple. After the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, 
This is when we begin the seeds of this plural expression. The plural expression of how we interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And even the companions themselves, there was about 130 of the companions that engaged in, in fatwa, that engaged in le- legal opinions, both men and women. Mostly men, but there were also women uh, amongst the Sahaba that did that. Meaning that when somebody had a question, they would go to this companion, they would go to that companion, and they would get a legal opinion. Some of the companions, they issued multiple, you know, you know, dozens of legal opinions. Some of the companions, they only opined on one issue or two issues, and it was limited. But the, the legal rank that's higher than that of a mufti is what we call a mujtahid. And a mujtahid is somebody that is able to look directly at the Qur'an and the Sunnah and be able to derive the rulings without having to rely on precedent or without having to rely on a school of thought or something like that. And of the mujtahid, of that rank, there was only about 20 of the Sahaba that were at that level. So think about that. If we, if we argue that at the death of the Prophet, of the passing of the Prophet wasallam, there was about 100 to 120,000 companions that means only 20 of those companions were at that level of legal independence, that level of ijtihad. Following from the companions up until our time, when we, you know, the people, not me, but the people that actually studied this, they found that there have been over 80 schools of law throughout the history of Islam. Not just the four, but over 80. Now, again, Maybe some of these schools were limited in certain issues or certain geographies. The four schools that we just mentioned, they are the more complete, the ones that have been uh, tended to the most, they have been serviced the most, they have you know, dozens and dozens of books that have been published and commented on, etc. Maybe some of these other opinions were very limited. And to have a school of legal thought, you have to have students that study the school that write about the school, that advance the school. So if you don't have that, the school will die. So some of them, you know, they don't survive the test of time. But when we look at our legal history, in both Sunni and Shia Islam, we have between 80 to 90 schools of law. 80 or 90 attempts to develop some sort of paradigm, some way of thinking that we apply to the Qur'an and the Sunnah to derive these rules. Now this doesn't mean that all of the issues that we have are all debatable. That every issue of law that we have, there's 80, 90, you know, 100 opinions. Because our sharia is divided into two categories. The one category is what we call absolute. It's qat'i, meaning that everyone agrees. These things don't require plurality, nor is plurality accepted. So, for example, we all agree that we pray five times a day. We all agree that we have to face the qibla when we pray. We all agree that we have to have wudu before we pray. Uh, We all agree that lying is haram. We all agree that uh, drinking alcohol is haram. That uh, eating uh, products from pig is haram. So on and so forth. So these things are issues of consensus. Ijma'. And ijma' consensus is one of the hallmarks of, of the Islamic legal tradition. That, that means that everybody at any, every age, they all agree on these issues. So we don't need to debate them. So there's no debate in those issues. You can't come and say, I know we have to fast, but let's not fast in Ramadan. Let's, let's fast in Muharram. 
or something. That won't work because there's ijma, there's consensus that the fasting month that is obligatory for Muslims must take place in Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the lunar calendar. And the lunar calendar begins by the sighting of the new moon, so on and so forth, etc. So there's no wiggle room. You can't come and say, oh, let's spread Hajj, let's make Hajj ten times during the year because there's just too many people. And we'll all go to uh, Mecca, Mina, Muzdalafa, we'll all do the same things, but we'll spread it. You can't. Why? Because there's ijma, there's a consensus that Hajj can only take place in these days of Dhul Hijjah, and uh, you can make Ahram from these places, so on and so forth. You get the idea. But there are some parts, the second part of our Sharia, which are dhanni, which are debatable, which are partial. Meaning that each school applying its own system of thinking to the Qur'an and Sunnah did its best to interpret these issues. And they might, for, for various reasons that do not necessarily concern us here in this venue, might derive slightly different opinions, slightly different uh, rulings. Their, their understanding and the reading of the text give a, plural, a set of plural answers. It is amongst this area of the Sharia that this discussion takes place. So as a Muslim, what do I do? Do I, do I follow any and all of these? Is one better than the other? Is one more correct than the other? Etc. How do you deal with the plurality? Now, when it comes to the uh, average Muslim, and here what we mean by average Muslim is we mean the non-trained legal scholar, which is essentially you know, all of us, meaning it's not, it's not your area of expertise. Your way of, of uh, answering this question is essentially what the mufti that is closest to you or the, the, the sharia teacher that is close to you tells you. So you ask somebody learned, hopefully that you trust, what do I do in this, what do I do in that? They give you the answer and you just go with that. But if you're studying and you're exposed to all of this, it becomes a little bit more complicated because you kind of know the ins and the outs. In this regard, one of the theories or one of the themes that we have is we have this theme of taqlid, the theme of following. So when you start to study uh, uh, fiqh, you, you start with one school of thought and you study it and you, become, you imitate that school of thought. The taqlid means to copy or to imitate or to follow. So when I started studying, for example, I started studying with the Shafi'i school because that's what was accessible to me. So I'm a Shafi'i, just by default. That's what I follow. The way I think, the way I pray, the way I function in my devotional life is according to the Shafi'i madhab. It doesn't mean that the Shafi'i Madham is better than the others, or more correct than the others. It means that that's what I had accessible to me. So that's what I studied. So I was limited. However, even in that, even in the course of following a school of law, you know, any, any uh, school of law is dealing with millions of minute issues of, of law. That doesn't mean every single thing I do in my life falls, follows strictly the Shafi'i Madham. Sometimes you have to take another opinion, you have to take a dispensation by following another opinion because it is more compatible. And it is here that we are reminded of this principle of this concurrent correctness of all of these schools of law. So as long as we are not talking about an issue in which there is consensus, and as long as we've established that there are different, correct, concurrent, different opinions on an issue, as a Muslim you are allowed to 
and permitted to follow any of those opinions that makes most sense for you. And let me give you an example. Most of the schools of law consider a dog to be ritually impure, or, or more correctly, to consider the saliva of the dog to be ritually, well actually the dog, all of it, is to be ritually impure. What we say in Arabic is najis. So if the dog, you know, licks you, uh, or you came in contact, you'd have to wash that area before you prayed, for example. If the dog, you know, licked a bowl or a cup or a spoon or something, you know, you'd have to wash it seven times, one time with earth, as the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ says. However, in the school of Imam Malik, Imam Malik had a different opinion, and he said that all animals, all created things are pure, including the dog and the pig. It doesn't mean that you can eat the dog and the pig, that's a different issue. But from the point of view, is the animal pure or not? Imam Malik said, no, they're all pure. So, if you live in the West, the way we do, you know, it would make more sense that you follow that opinion. So when you're standing in line at the train station or the airplane or the airport and you know you have the canine dog, you know, don't be the Muslim that runs away from the dog because then, then the dog is going to run after you and then you know, see something, say something and that's a disaster. You know? uh, so that's not going to work. So for our predicament, that doesn't work. Or if you have somebody that's blind and they have a service animal or, or elderly and they have a service, service animal, and they want to come to the mosque. You know, most people in the mosque would freak out. The dog in the mosque, you know. But we have to take this opinion because we, we're in need of this opinion. So in this age that we live in, the plural age that we live in, we need this plurality in our sharia to be able to find those rulings that are more compatible. And the burden of this, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are listening, falls on the learned person. The burden of deciding and choosing which opinion is most compatible falls on those that are studying. So no longer can you just go and, okay, I studied the Hanafi madhab and that's it. That's all I know. I'm going to go back to my community and I'm going to beat Hanafism into them, you know, uh, no matter what. That's not going to work. Because there are many things that might not be compatible. There are many things that might not work. There are many things that might seem antiquated. There are many, th many people, they grow up with a certain legal tradition, not knowing that it's a certain legal tradition. Like for example, for the Hanafis, the man has to cover his head when he prays. So if you go into a, like a subcontinent mosque or like a Turkish mosque, oftentimes even when you're praying and your head is not covered, somebody will come and they'll put something on your head. And they'll have like these plastic kufis, like a bucket of plastic like kufis to cover your head with. Or you know, sometimes the men, they take out their handkerchief and they tie it on their head when they pray and things like that. Where is this coming from? Because this is a legal opinion that says this. Now the other schools, it doesn't. You know, for the Shafi school, you don't have to do that. It's a sunnah to cover your head for a man if you're praying. So if you go to a... If I walked into a mosque that's predominantly people that are from the subcontinent, and everyone has covered their heads, and I've been invited to give a lecture, and I show up, you know, with uh, with a T-shirt and uh, jeans. You know, they're gonna they're gonna say, "Audu billah, who is this, you know, sellout uh, guy that's coming?" You have to be sensitive to these things. So, in the age of plurality, this is when we also need our our Islam needs to be plural in this sense by following the valid concurrent opinions. And I I want to make that point very clear that all of these opinions are concurrently correct. We're not saying that one is correct over another. But 
we will choose one over another because we are in need of that opinion. Because it is more compatible with our way of life, it is more compatible with our customs, uh, etc. Lastly, I wanted to just give you a very short uh, history of how this has taken place. Because sometimes as Western Muslims, I feel that we might be uh, far removed from, from some of these trends. So in, in Egypt, which, which I'm most familiar with, uh, at, at the National Fatwa Office, Dar al-Ifta, in which I uh, uh, was a part of for many years, almost a decade actually, that institution is a good example of what I'm saying, of how what I'm saying has become institutionalized, or is starting to become institutionalized. So the National Fatwa Office of Egypt was established in 1895. So in that year, there was an official position called the Grand Mufti of Egypt. So this is now a position that has been established, and their job is obviously to issue fatwas. At that time in 1895, Egypt was nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman world, let us say. And one of the features of the Ottoman Empire is that Hanafi, the Hanafi law, Hanafi school of thought, was adopted as the official madhab of the empire. So by default, all of the countries and all of the regions that fall under you know, Ottoman influence would, are Hanafi. So if you wanted to work as a Sharia judge or if you wanted to work as a Mufti in Egypt, you needed to learn Hanafi fiqh even if you grew up studying another madhab. So at that time, in the very beginning, it was all exclusively based on Hanafi fiqh. And then a couple of Muftis later, when Muhammad Abdu, uh, you know, the famous Muhammad Abdu, when he became the Grand Mufti of Egypt, he started noticing that this was a problem. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, he, was, he grew up as a Maliki. So that was one of the issues that he had to learn another madhab to, to be able to serve. But he started finding that there were certain opinions of Hanafi fiqh that just did not work with what was happening in Egypt. So he started opening up the fatwa process to the four Sunni schools of law. So, and I, I don't mean every single issue, I'm just, but I mean that you will find in his writings opinions based on the Maliki school, an occasional uh, reference to the Hanbali school, an occasional reference to the Shafi'i school. So he started to open up the fatwa process to accommodate more than one madhab. And then a few generations later, they added to the four, another four madhabs. So at this time we had the Hanafi, Shafi'i, or Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali, right? Those are the four Sunni schools the big four. But then we have four other schools. We have the Zahiri school, which is a minor school that you find in some places in the Muslim world. The Ibadi school, which is the school of the Omanis in the Arabian Peninsula. The Zaydi school, the Shias of Yemen. And the Ja'fari school, the, the Twelver Shias. So notice that we add Shia schools of law now to the mix of plurality of the issues that, of the sources that we look to to solve some of these problems. Now, there are a lot of differences between the Sunni schools and the Shia schools on many issues. But there are also similarities and there are also nuances that the Shia schools have that the Sunni schools don't have. And in, in many 
not many, that's the wrong word. But in, in some cases, as the Muslim world was making the transition into modernity, and part of that process was to codify their legal code, there were some Sunni countries that took some opinions from the Shia madhahib and enshrined them in the, in the law. In Egypt, for example, one of the laws dealing with inheritance was taken from the Jafari school. This is like one of the famous uh, examples. And then after the eight schools, a couple of generations later, now the, the institution is looking at all of these 80, 90 schools of the past. So this is an institutionalization of what I have just stated, or an attempt at an institutionalization. I'm not saying it's, it's foolproof. And not all of the fatwa centers or councils around the world follow, but this is one of the trends that's happening, especially with international matters. And it's important for us to know this so we understand that there is this plurality, and that the plurality is an asset, not a liability. And we should be aware of this as we seek guidance in our own life. Wallahu a'lam.